Hey guys, it's Joe's Julian. This week I sit down with animation director for King of the Hill, Alan Jacobson. You guys know my love for this series. I hold this one up there with Hey Arnold and Samurai Jack as perfect shows from start to finish. In this episode we chat the early days of his career and his first day on King of the Hill at Film Roman. His fond memories of the series and the folks he worked with. We also chat about the funnest episode he worked on and the hardest one he worked on. This one was an absolute blast, and expect more King of the Hill episodes and a retrospective or two really soon. Hey guys, one last note before we roll into the show. We just started our Patreon channel, and I would love for you guys to go check that out. What you can expect from the Patreon is early and ad-free access to all audio, the second half of every video that we put up on YouTube, and exclusive chats only available on Patreon. And as we continue to grow within Patreon, there's going to be so much more extra stuff that we're going to give you guys. So, if you'd like to check us out on Patreon, just type in patreon.com slash inmyheadpodcast or follow the link below. Now, on to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's My Head Podcast. I'm your host, Julian. Today, I'm joined by Alan. Alan, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here, man. It was nice. We just did a, a quick chat getting to know you. And uh, yeah, this seems like it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, it really is. And shout out to Sean, man, for setting this one up. Sean's going to be coming back on the show and he's going to be talking in depth about his King of the Hill experience. So that's what we're talking about today, ladies and gentlemen. King of the Hill. Alan here, his first job in animation was on King of the Hill. So like most of us, whenever we have a first job or a first of anything, it's right here, generally, very vivid. We can remember most of what was going on. Uh, so take me back, man. Let's jump back. What's that? 30... 30 years ago almost or a little bit less than 30 years maybe 28 years ago it was 19, 1996 1996 so we got 27 years ago right you're walking into i'm assuming it was film roman still at that time it was film roman absolutely all right what was that first day like man paint us a picture get it after i got the job i'll, I'll, I'll tell you that uh just receiving the call that that i got the offer blew my mind I, I wasn't intending to do animation at that time. I, I wanted to be a comic book artist. And uh, I, I was encouraged to apply to animation because they have benefits. And I had a few people look at my portfolio and say, you could get animation work. So I kind of, I winged it. I, I took a test for something called Duckman and King of the Hill. And I got, um, I, fortunately, I got calls on both. But my friends were like, do King of the Hill. Because they do that at the place where uh, The Simpsons is made. So, uh, and I was like, oh, it's the guy who did Beavis and Butthead. This sounds cool. I took the job thinking it, it would last three to six months. And, and it turned into years, years of employment uh, for me. Uh, but my, my first day starting at Film Roman, I, I rolled up and they're like, hey, uh, it's not going to be housed at Film Roman. We're, we're actually starting off in Century City, which was another location. So I had to sort of haul ass over there. And I, uh, I met my roommate, who at the time was a character designer, Paul Scarlatta. He's gone on to be a be a director in his own right. But I, I was just like wide-eyed wonder. I want to soak up and um, figure out everything I can. So I was just I was intimidated and excited. I would say was was my start to the show. That's really cool, man. Uh, when you get there and you start handing, do you remember what your pencil test was? Would have been when you got that call back from King of the Hill, or did that come after? I, I have no idea at this point. I, I wish I did. I don't know uh, what what I did uh, to submit uh, for the gig at this point. 
but I was hired to be a board artist. And then uh, it was very early on. This is before the first episode came out. So they were still, you know, finding their way to an extent. And I was told uh, there would most likely be a board position would open up uh, fairly soon. And if I, if I wanted to start early, I could, I could work doing a uh, background layout. So I started off uh, background layout, which was also not a, not a particular skill of mine, yeah. but, uh, but I was like, I'll put all, put my all into that. So yeah, it was episode one of season one. Uh, he did a background, background layout on that show. So backgrounds have come up quite, uh, what's the word? A lot as a, it's a, when I break it down, it's a lot. I'm a huge, I, cause I told you and the fans have heard too, that I want to be an animator when I was younger and it yeah. wasn't until shit maybe a year two year ago uh i'm watching kid cosmic craig mccracken show on netflix and i remember looking in the backgrounds i'm like i'm pausing it and i'm just admiring the backgrounds it's beautiful the colors just the aesthetics they chose just everything about it and then when i was talking to craig he was like well we don't really want you to pause and just look at one thing we want everything to be you know Oh, cope aesthetic. You want everything to kind of like level out and bring everything up. And I was like, yeah, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. Craig. I was like, the, the voice acting is beautiful. The animation is beautiful, but it was just something about the colors, the style and everything mm-hmm. about that. And going back to what I had previously said, when I want to be an animator, I think that I would have gravitated towards back. If I ever got into that, that field, I would gravitate towards the backgrounds because there's just something so beautiful about world building. Um, now, with you doing backgrounds in that that first part, or that first uh, first half of your, uh, your 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 tenure there, at least, um, what were some of the things that gave you probably the hardest or most trouble? Well, again, you know, starting out, it was everything's a challenge, and right. I think the first scene, at least as I remember it, the first scene that I, I ever did a layout for was a baseball diamond that's mm-hmm. in you know in um, episode one. And we didn't have reference and there was no internet at that time. So I was like, I know what a baseball diamond looks like. I think we might've had like one, one view of it. And it was trying to figure out how to make the, the bleachers work. And I was like, wait, <laughs> how do the bleachers work? I got the perspective on it, but like, I, you know, I had to sort of consciously think about all, all of uh, those things. Because at that point, really, it was I, I think I was given the opportunity to do backgrounds because uh, my comic book samples showed that I understood perspective. So I had backgrounds in my work. So I guess that there was there was enough there to suggest that I could do that. But I, I didn't think of it as a, a specialization of mine. I was really grateful for the opportunity. Didn't end up doing that very long Um because I got the opportunity to be an assistant director in that first season. And then things really sort of changed for me. I being uh, part of the, the, the bigger picture, I guess, you know, getting to work with characters, all, all of that kind of stuff was much more where my, my head was at, where my interests were. Absolutely. And you said something I want to circle back to, because uh, I can remember not very much, but I can remember a little bit of like what, no internet was like it's like living in a world where there's no harry potter or there's no spongebob or there's no yeah. you know insert whatever's huge at that time i that very few memories that i can remember were like those those iconic characters those iconic moments weren't there that 
like I said, the internet. Um, so for something like trying to find a reference for those bleachers, are you guys just having to go out, take some pictures? Or you guys have like a Rolodex of photographs that you guys might have at your disposal? Or how do you find out uh, what bleachers really look like and work for? Yeah, for, for the most part, uh, it seems to me, and again, I was the beneficiary of the, the background designer. Um, Phil Hayes was in charge of the department. And uh, most of the research would have been done prior to to me gotcha. working on the scenes. But in those days, there was a lot of going out and buying magazines, going mm. to bookstores and finding uh, reference for locales. Anyone that was an artist in those days had uh, either in the studio they were working in or their own sort of personal, I'm looking around like it's here, had binders <laughs> filled with things. You know, like when I was wanting to do comics, I had binders filled with cars i cut cars out of magazines i had like the cities i went and bought books on ireland and spain and just so i i had uh stuff so typically uh in any project in those days there would be a sort of uh, a gathering of reference that the the designers would do and it was you know paid for by the show and some of those materials would be available to anyone on the show you want to flip through something that that, that seems relevant but most of the the work, most of the thinking on on those things, you know. Again, I, I mentioned the bleachers. That was one because it wasn't worked out, so it it's it stuck with me as like, oh, how am I going to do this? Um, but most of that would would be designed in the design department, either uh, really it, it most times, hopefully before the storyboard, sometimes after the storyboard, but certainly for when you're doing a, a background layout. Uh, you, you would have most of that worked out by a designer already. I hope that that makes sense, yeah. right? But there is a sort of sort of whole big uh, process. But uh, yeah, the pre-internet was was rough, and it's it seems still to me uh, amazing mm -hmm. that you can find just about anything and a, a lot that you don't want to find with every search. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And uh, like uh, like I said, man, there's there's two shows that I bring up on a regular basis. I know King of the Hill being one and Hey Arnold being other that were like seminal moments in my life. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we we had this talk prior to us jumping on, like just how important the show was to me. I mean, I told you I wear short pants because of Bobby. I carry pocket sand as much as I possibly can. This it rotated into my Dungeons and Dragons group when I would play with my friends. We would play online. And I was always playing a, a wizard, so I would always roll, you know, for pocket sand to 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 disrupt whatever people were coming. <laughs> on. Yeah, you don't have pocket sand. You didn't pick up sand, and I was like, "Listen, man, Rusty Shackleford, you never saw Rusty pick up sand. You all, he always had sand in his pocket." Um, so gotta like, be prepared, man. Gotta be prepared, and I mean, I I still say at least once to twice a week. I don't know you. That's my purse, and I <laughs> yeah. That's you know, so there, like yeah. I said, this one transcends not only my life, but just like like the zeitgeist that is Julian, man. Uh, so I that's my purse, that's one that sticks with a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. It, like I said, it's just it's something 
so out there and it's like as a little kid you can kind of see yourself doing that especially because i was i was a lot like bobby in a sense where i was a short little pudgy kid and it wasn't until probably like seventh eighth grade where i shot up to about six foot two and nobody really picked on me anymore you know yeah. i was a very big kid for my age at that time but before that gross burden puberty hit man i was a short little fat kid i was weird to try to make people laugh with my jokes uh you know i was that cartoon comic book kid so they yeah. get me over in that corner over there type of thing, you know, so it was, but I was a hybrid man. Cause I love the NBA. I love this. I love that. So I could kind of, I could be plugged and played with like anybody in school. Really. I could like assimilate essentially. Um, yeah. But like I said, King of the Hill, so important to my development as a youth. Well, uh, I want to just hopefully not interrupt you, but throw oh, in okay. something on top of that bit of a bit of maybe trivia. Uh, when you say, hey, Arnold, one of the the artists that I worked with at that time, John Magnus, who mm. worked in backgrounds, you know, as opposed to like, I feel like I did that for a while. John was one of the, the background artists and he had uh, previously worked on, on Hey Arnold. And when we were talking about things and I was finding my way, that was um, a show that he referred to quite often. Just yeah. like anecdotally. So it's interesting. You know, it's definitely that period of time. But um, yeah, there was at least that that literal crossover, at least one person, uh, maybe some others. But but both the shows that you're citing lean towards realism, yes. you know, lean towards like sort of real human experience. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that uh, to be something that I really connected with as well. King of the Hill, I didn't expect much out of it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. Well, you know, how could I? It's not that I had a bad opinion of it, but Beavis and Butthead was funny. Yes. And now here's a show that's um, Mike Judge and and Greg Daniels, who I, I later came to understand who Greg Daniels was. But early on, it's like Mike Judge and uh, a writer are, are doing a thing. Yeah, that could be cool. And I was really surprised at how we all on the crew fell in love with the characters like they were real very, very quickly. So, um, yeah, there was there's a there is a charm to it. And um, I, that's probably one of the reasons it, it got sold. And one of the reasons people have followed it is that there's something relatable, you know, something really, really, really human about it. I, I, I still, I still dig it. Yeah, absolutely. When you can see yourself in a character, when you can see tendencies from a character, yeah. uh, you know, I think it's easier to, you know, take a ride with somebody, right? There's, there's, yeah. Not very many things that make us different as a person. You're from one spot. I'm from another spot. You might wear your hair longer. I used to wear my hair longer. You might have a beard. I might not have a beard. So it's just yeah. there's very, very small differences in between us. So when we can sit there and connect on things like you're into comic books and I'm into comic books, I'm still a Wednesday yep. warrior. I go and get them every Wednesday. Um, Smart man. Absolutely. You know, I'm not a huge trade fan. Like sometimes I have to go back and buy trades that are out of print or I just don't feel like dropping 200 bucks on a single issue. Um, yeah. But for the most part, I'm a single issue type of guy. But like I said, with with King of the Hill in particular, I could find myself in so many different characters like yeah. and we could see somebody that we knew that was in our orbit from all of these characters. Everybody knows a Dale Gribble. Everybody <laughs> knows a Boomhauer, a Hank, a Nancy. Yeah. Uh, on Redcorn, everybody knows somebody to that extent. So that's why it made it so easy to fall in love with these characters because, like, I know this person or I know that person. It, yeah. it felt familiar always. Very flawed. I think it's something that I that I always uh, found appealing is that they were all flawed. They weren't presented as 
ideals of any kind. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, there is this like sort of powerful through line of um, moral fiber because all the characters are struggling against their worst instincts, not mm -hmm. giving into their worst instincts. You know, it's like real slice of life, but again, both Greg and Mike, but when I think of this, I think in particular of Greg, Greg Daniels, being so focused on story and character. And early on for me, you know, there was, there was times when I'd be at a meeting and there'd be something that was so funny, like our favorite joke. And then Greg would cut it and say, it's, you know, and not cut it because he thought it was something that they had originated in the writer's room. But then when you're watching it, he would say it's it doesn't add to the story or it's not really on character. And it it took me a while to to become educated by experience to really understand that. And I think part of the the huge appeal of the show is that Greg shepherded them, them, the they the characters as real human beings, you know, real human beings who could could fail and do goofy stuff, but he knew what their hearts were and he he knew what their minds were and uh, it kept things consistent. And if you can put those characters through interesting paces, I think it's like, um, it, it becomes much more like, oh, they're the people I know. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It really is, man. And uh, there was one thing I wanted to circle back to, and that was, uh, you had said something earlier in the chat that, when you went from backgrounds, it was a very brief moment, but then you went to the assistant director and then you really, you said your yeah. range had opened up with the characters, with the story, with what was going yeah. on, um, was something that I really love uh, because we all have our favorites, whether it's we like to laugh at them, we like to hate them, whatever it is, we have our favorites when it comes to characters. But I think it's something completely different when you have somebody that is helping create and build these characters, not only their worlds, their perceptions, their views. Uh, so yeah. I think you guys are, it sounds weird. It sounds douchey and I'm not trying to sound douche, but you guys are birthing these characters, essentially giving you're breathing. And that's the whole thing of animation. You're breathing in yeah. life to these characters. Uh, mm -hmm. Who were some of those characters when you really had that, that field or that scope opened up to a wider level? Who were some of those characters that felt like a comfortable pair of shoes or a comfortable pair of pants, man? Who was it easy to slip into? Well, again, they're, they're... <laughs> They were all so amazing in different ways. Bobby, you mentioned Bobby. To, to me, Hank Hill is the main character, mm -hmm. but Bobby's stories and Bobby's kind of orientation on the world, I feel like was the heart for me. Like I found Bobby to be a charmingly awkward sort of loser. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I found him somehow lovable. So I really, I gravitated towards Bobby I thought uh, Boomhauer was just cool because, you know, like, especially yeah, early on, it seemed Boom like, Hauer. yeah, he's, he's just like, <laughs> he's, he's mumbling, but he had like a cool vibe. Uh, Dale, just amazingly funny. And I think I, I loved from the start and always will. I lo love Bill, Bill Dotrieve. Um now, years and years later, I'm I'm very familiar with Stephen Root's work in a you know a variety of things. I think Stephen Root really brought mm -hmm. that character to life in an amazing way. But past Stephen's work, there's the design and the scenarios that he was put in. Uh, yeah, I found Bill to be 
endlessly uh, charming and unexpected for me. But all, oh, yeah, so many wonderful characters, man. There really was. And the fact that every character, you don't see this very often. And we, we, I, I think we might have talked about this before we hit record, but filler episodes, right? So yeah. going back and rewatching this series four or five times now, um, I'm very aware and very cognizant of like, not only have I seen this, I've animation domination that was the cartoon block when i was growing up so you had simpsons yeah. and King of the Hill, yeah. right so usually what they would do like especially like during my era of you know king of the hill when i was growing up they would play the previous weeks if it was the if the season was new and it was ongoing they would play the previous weeks at like 5 30 i think it was the new episode at 6 or 6 30 whatever it was when animation domination mm-hmm. took off um so i was getting two episodes but i was always yeah from the week before so i'm catching up to catch up again so these these shows and 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 everything stick like right there um but uh fuck i lost my point but nonetheless man the (laughs) character the characters in particular what like i said what i liked about these characters somebody like bill bill could i don't want to say bipolar in the wrong way but he was very up and down right so that character uh, just for him in particular um you would have a super super happy guy and then he would just he got dumped you know his heart was broken so he would go very low with somebody that's a character that's like that is it very hard to track or is it very hard to animate like what goes into some of those uh what goes into some of those those modes or those moments where you have to animate bill where he can go up or down at the flip of a coin well the thing is i mean it's a very very good question but when you're you're familiar and immersed i guess in the process it's actually very organic because everything that we, we being the people who are drawn, drawn the pictures, right? Everything that we're doing is, is built on a foundation of a character has been conceived, has been written. Their dialogue has been written. Their actions have been written. So there's all kind of inferences you can make. Right. Yeah. And then the performance, when you say ups and downs, it's not like, like I remember seeing Miss, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire and like Robin Williams was doing voiceover to, to something. I'm like, no, that's not how it goes. It's like we're, we're doing the performances based on on audio. Mm-hmm. So it's there. It's there if you listen to it. It's there if you, you care and give yourself to it. Mm-hmm. Something that frustrated me sometimes and probably frustrates anyone that, that hears this who's worked in the business. But those those folks who would uh, do a storyboard or do anything without listening to the audio and they would go solely by what the script said. And anytime I, I could and most of the time we did, we had a recorded uh, track Anytime I could listen to it. It would change everything because it's not just words and it's not just my interpretation of words. It's Bill, mm-hmm. say, as an example, Bill is there. There. And now I have to kind of give give a what give service to that or or try to um, well articulate that yeah. a a uh, I guess where it would be more frustrating would be the times when there were celebrity guest stars mm-hmm. and it depends on uh, the the individual episode but is this meant to be uh, like I did one that had Kid Rock and Pam Anderson in it. There's like an eating, <laughs> eating contest with Bill. And they were mostly physically Kid Rock and, and Pam Anderson. They were intended to be, but they weren't 
So like, can you really base it on them? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, uh, whereas the characters that you lived in more, you know, like Bill after a few episodes, Bobby after a few episodes, Hank after a few episodes, you'd know who they are. Like, you know, your friends, like, you know, your family. And then you're like, well, they wouldn't do that. This is how Hank would act. This is how Hank wouldn't act. You know, so it's like, uh, it, it's a it's a sort of um, gestalt of, of all of the the uh, the material that we're given, and then we on the visual side we're again articulating it to the best of our abilities. But no, I think it wasn't a challenge. Like you, you mentioned, highs and lows with a character like Bill, it was it was kind of thrilling to to get to to see them in different scenarios. I don't remember the episode. I told you before this, and I'm I'm bad with remembering a specific. Uh, numbers and such but when we first saw that that bill was a high school quarterback and bill was badass that was fascinating to me that was exciting and challenging to see bill from a different time in his life a different kind of bill but still be bill yeah it's wonderfully uh as an artist i think um when the characters are articulated so well in story and then vocal performance it just speaks to you it's it's like something something um, to echo and amplify, and if you can give yourself to it again instead of fighting against it, it should be this way. Uh, it's it was really really wonderful, wonderful great times. Same with Peggy. As I'm talking, Peggy Hill, I, I found to be um, unlikable, not as a character, but as a person. Like if I was in a room with her, I, I would not want to have been in the room with Peggy Hill. Uh, Kathy and Jimmy's voice, wonderful. And and the character very very funny, but like I would have been irritated. I might still be irritated to be in the room with, with Peggy Hill, but she was fun to work with because of those works, because of her uptightness. Yeah. You know, you just think of her differently than Nancy. Say, it's not that they're you know, Nancy Nancy was sexier, prettier, but just entirely entirely different uh, human beings. Luann. Again, another, you know, young woman positioned as like the attractive young, young niece, but like goofy mm -hmm. and unaware of her uh, sort of Kelly Bundy uh, sexuality, yeah. maybe, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, off, I'm off on a tangent following uh, old thoughts, but yeah, fun, fun, fun to work with them because uh, they were characters, real characters you know, with uh, dimension. Absolutely, man. You guys took two-dimensional characters and made them 3D without making them 3D and CGI. So you guys really had, you know, I, I without this, without it sounding like I'm blowing smoke up you guys' ass. I mean, like I said, this, in my opinion, perfect show. When it comes to adult animated shows, there's nothing better. Like people throw The Simpsons, you got Rick and Morty out there, you got Family Guy, you got American Dad, you got Bob's Burgers. I can go on and on and on and on. There's nothing talk. There's nothing touching. And I think this is what the point I was trying to get at earlier. Uh, there's nothing touching King of the Hill. There was really no filler episodes. And this is exactly where I was going because now I remember where I was going to go. Uh, every character that was in the show had a reason to be in there. It wasn't just throwing a character in there to see if they could get a pop, a laugh, you know, make something happen. Every character had a moment. Every character had a purpose. There was nothing in there that was wasted, in my opinion. Um, and going back to that Kid Rock episode, every time I think about that episode, the first and only thing I think of is it's time for America to get cocky again. And that was when Bill left and, you know, Kid Rock's talking about entering and eating the hot dog. Uh, <laughs> hot dog. 
So it's that that episode sticks out so so vividly because I was like, man, Kid Rock was blowing up at that time. Like yeah. I remember him being on the hometown radio station, 101, 1011 WJR, free plug for you guys. You guys don't need it. Uh, but uh he was always on, and it was the bow with a bow whatever that first hit was yeah yeah that the same album that cowboy was on so he was like red hot and then i remember just flipping through the channels and it was uh, when the tv guide was still the tv guide you had the scrolling thing and it was yeah. telling you what was coming on and it said kid rock on king of the hill i'm like what the fuck is going on kid rock is on king of the hill turn it on and i see this i'm like oh shit this is so fun it's so cool um and then you know going back to the previous thing you had said when uh when you see a flashback of bill when he takes off that helmet when you see him being a running back or cornerback i don't know football but he's got the mullet and i'm yeah. like fuck yes let's go <laughs> yeah. Bill would have a mullet man it's yes. like, like everything every aesthetic detail had a purpose and it had a point um with with those characters like i said that you that those felt like second nature. I got to imagine there was probably some characters that were a little bit more difficult to slip into the headspace or really get to work with. So does any of those characters come to mind as what might've been a little bit difficult to get into? Well, to, to be honest, as opposed to my usual lie, no, uh, <laughs> I, I, I initially kind of bumped on, on con con super Nusenpone. Yes. Because, and, I, and the reason I'm, I'm like hedging my bets here is I feel like I can't say this without it sounding like it's an accusation against uh, anyone, and it's not meant that way, but it was a Asian character voiced by a white man, and uh, most of us at, at the time in the layout and uh, storyboard pool were, were Caucasians, and I, I didn't want to be doing something that was mockery of yeah. of uh, uh and it, it took me i think a little bit to get comfortable with the fact that we weren't doing mockery you yes. know we were actually like creating a character and when it and, and again i don't know exactly where this uh where this falls in the series probably very early it might be in Khan's first appearance but um it, it, hank uh kind of confronts him uh, at a point in the episode and conscious says I am everywhere you want to be, Hank Hill. And it's just kind of cracked me up as being just like he was just a cocky kind of he's he's the 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 neighbor, the Joneses. Yes. You know, just the Joneses with uh, you know, like like a uh, a surface that doesn't fit with the neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so that would be a character I I would say again that I maybe bumped on uh early early on but i actually really loved connie right yeah. away um there's no characters i don't think there's any characters that i i didn't enjoy before we started here we we were talking briefly about uh, cotton mm -hmm. cotton hill wonderful character um internally like we some of us i don't want to say all of us but but we would consider that character the the more probably the most cartoonish of the the cast uh, with the whole having his shins shot off and, and reattached is not actual sort of real world science, but his orneriness and the, the ugliness and sort of cuteness in his design is still really, really uh, impressively weird to me because he just looks like an old Bobby. It doesn't yeah. look like Hank, but he looks like that's that's Bobby as an old man, you know. 
um, so I really, really, I, I, I dug him. Um, yeah, I can't really think of any any characters that. Again, the the only one that comes to mind is is uh, Khan, just because I, I wasn't sure what we were going to be doing with him. Yeah. But no, nah, no, nah, they were all really cool and fun to discover. I think. You know? Absolutely, and uh, whenever whenever I think of Cotton and whenever I think of Khan, the first thing I think of is like, it's Khan's first appearance. And then it's it's Hank's it's Hank going. So are you Chinese or are you Japanese? And he's like, I'm Laotian. And yeah. then barbecue. And then um, ah, fuck was a bill. He's like, well, I'll take that steak. And he's like, the hell you will. Did you win the war? And then he's like, that one's for my daddy. He's like, oh, cotton's coming. And then he uh, they look over at Connie's like, you better get out of here. He doesn't like Japanese. He's like, I'm Laotian. I'm not Japanese. And then it flash forwards a little bit and you see Cotton come in. He's like, he's Chinese or something like that. He's like, no, he's not. He's Laotian. Ain't you, Mr. He's Laotian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's Laotian. <laughs> it's that, that character, like I said, there's there's not one character that I can say I don't like. There's not one character that I can say that's not true because there's a couple characters I can say I love more than other characters. Um, yeah. You know, Bobby being one, uh, Hank always being the guy, Cotton. It, it's so hard to, you're supposed to hate Cotton. But there's something yeah. undeniable about him because he does – you see the motives because when you – I couldn't see this as a kid. But being a, being a dad for one, being older for two, and then being you know uh, a military vet for three, I can see all of these and draw correlations from these characters that I probably – no, there's no probably – that I could not, uh, could not take from when I was 12, 13, really absorbing this show. You got the generation that he's coming from. He's coming from that World War II generation. So what does that mean? His dad was probably in the First World War. Right. So what does that mean? If you take a step back, that's 100 years ago. What did dudes not tell other dudes? I love you, man. What did dudes right. not tell their sons? I love you. What did you not see? You did not see a man hugging their son. So then you have this standoffish dude where he goes to a world war. He kills 50 men, gets his shins blown off by a Japanese machine gun. He's reattached from his knees to his ankles and he can sleep in somebody's pullout dresser. So yep. what does that mean? That means, one, he's a dick. Two, he's a hard ass. Three, he's a war hero, right? You take all of those things. And like I said, when you analyze Cotton, he's a character that is so flawed, yet you can see, at least if you open up your eyes and you just don't judge him from that face value or that cover price, you can look at him and you're like, there is so many things that you can play on with his character alone. And I thought he was one of the most well-written characters. It killed me. When 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 they killed him off, when when Cotton passed away, especially with uh, you know obviously hindsight being twenty twenty, they didn't know you know that they were going to get a reboot. Fucking fifteen years, whatever it is, ten years. I don't know. I can't remember when it when it went off the air, but you know yeah. it takes so long to get a re a reboot or a revival. You know, so getting to see that character kind of pass away, maybe we'll get some flashbacks in the the series they're doing of something along. I have to imagine that that character is way too rich of a character to. Well, that's the thing is like, yeah, the, the, the character has the entire life from birth to passing to yes. refer to, um, yeah. but no, there, there would be no, no uh, further adventures of, of cotton. Uh, the, the thing that stands out with, with cotton in particular to me is one of the episodes that I, I directed uh, they're sitting, the family is sitting at the Thanksgiving table oh, and, and cotton, cotton goes on. Um, you know what I hate? Tilly. And Tilly, Tilly was like Hank's mom. And it's just like, it was such a simple, just 
ridiculous statement, but so blunt. And it sort of sums up everything about him. Uh, he would be like what now in, in these these times we would probably say a toxic, toxic male, toxic, uh, toxic masculinity a lot uh, um, would be maybe coursing through Cotton's veins. But what a great foil to Hank, who was our hero, you know, and you could see like like not that it's abuse, but you could see the the lack of love in certain ways that Hank got and why Hank would be have a harder time expressing himself physically and just even being comfortable in his own skin. Um, I think the, the characters stand in contrast to one another. That's what builds those great relationships. You know, like Hank as seen by cotton or in a relationship with cotton, so different than Hank as seen by, or in a relationship with Dale Gribble or anyone else, you know, so it pulls different things out of, out of the characters. And I think, again, that's what maybe makes someone like Cotton likable. Like I earlier said, I wouldn't want to hang out with Peggy Hill, but the character is so likable. You know, I wouldn't want to hang out with Cotton, but the character was enormously likable. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, I I want to say this is probably where you're I've, I say this so many times on the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I apologize. You're not supposed to have a favorite world war. You're not supposed to have a favorite war. But I love learning and researching and just watching anything I can on World War Two. I mean, I was Navy for seven and a half years, so I got to see the Pearl Harbor Memorial. I got to go over to countries and see shit that most people won't get to see, you know, so. When I, I didn't really like the Navy time, so it wasn't all fucking sunshine and rainbows and shit. Um, but what I what it did set me up for, uh, you know, in the future and at that time, I'm always grateful for. Um, but I got to see, you know, uh, a, a different side to to all of this, all of this shit, really. Um, and with I think that started with Cotton Hill because World War II, we're learning about it very little in, in, in elementary school at that time, going into middle school and stuff like that. So very little did we know about. You always know December 7th, 1941, Day Pearl Harbor. You know, there's certain dates that you can point to and you say, I know this because of this. But I think it really drove home the fascination I had with it because you hear about this dude and you see these flashbacks, even though they're animated of him, you know, charging the hills or whatever he was doing and you're like oh wow that's really cool and then you start learning about this shit and then you find a yeah. love so i found a love for this show by watching it but i also found a love even though it sounds really weird that you love a war but i found fun and enjoyment just getting to understand and getting it's something interesting like i said we keep referring to these characters as real people when you can when you can see yourself in those characters but when you can go back and you can read something about a war, you can read somebody's encounter or their their entire encapsulation of that. And then you can really be put into their shoes just for a small moment, no matter how real or fake that might be. I think that's something very fascinating. Like I said, you guys gave me a great show to watch, but really cool shit to really get into past King of the Hill that I think everybody should really know especially the American histories, but just the, the first two wars, what led up to it, everything in between from Vietnam to, to Pearl, not Pearl Harbor, because I was going back, but desert storm. And then you have operation yeah. during freedom and all of that crazy shit. So it's, it's cool to track all of this stuff. And it's interesting to think that before King of the Hill, I probably didn't think about world war two at all. I didn't think about war. But now you say, and I would, I would say something like that too. You say it's weird that, that my, my fascination with history was inspired by an animated series, but 
now to wax philosophical. That's the point of stories, yeah. right? Like stories, they're, they're information that grab you and turn you on or turn you off, but they kind of ignite you in some way. And uh, all of folklore, right? That's why we have stories that have been told for thousands of years because they resonate with people. Like, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be like an Argonaut, you know? But <laughs> but like Greek mythology thrilled me and excited me. I never thought I was going to uh, encounter a sphinx. Mm -hmm. But but reading about people struggling and uh, in the case of the sphinx, having to outthink a problem that captivated me and uh, comic books did, did uh, the same. I uh, briefly wanted to study law briefly mm -hmm. because, uh, because I loved daredevil and I wanted to study science because I loved Ant-Man and you know, uh, whatever it is that, that hooks you, you're hooked. And I think that there's a real opportunity in, in fiction, not to preach. And unfortunately now, now I'll, I'm going to preach. <laughs> to my taste, to my taste right now in the last several years of entertainment, I love having messages, but when the messages trump the story or the story is entirely created to deliver a message, I find it much uh, less charming. And I think a lot of people, like, if it's a message you like, you're like, yeah, yeah, say it. If it's a message you, you hate, you, you tune it out. But like I, I, as a kid, I was captivated by Archie Bunker. You know, Archie Bunker's a racist. Never yeah. made me want to be a racist, but I loved the show and I loved him. Mm -hmm. Like it gave me sort of a compassion for an ignorant kind of well-intentioned sort. So, you know, whatever, uh, we can't know how stories are going to gonna grab us, but I think when when there's really really good work and good thought, and again I go back to Mike and Greg, both as the the keepers of these these characters, you're you're certainly not the only one that got roped in, and then it's like a Trojan horse, right? The, the entertainment comes in, but there's something in there got delivered to you, yeah. and in that case you're like, oh, fascinated with with a war with some aspects of of history. I love that man. Absolutely, man. And before we get right back to King of the Hill, there is one thing because you brought up comics a few different times. Now, I'm a huge Daredevil fan. However, my favorite Marvel character of all time, Jen Walters, She-Hulk. I don't know what it is about that character. Uh, I, I've never been a fan of the Hulk, with the exception of the yeah. comic series that came out uh, probably over the last six, seven years. It was called The Immortal Hulk. Have you gotten a chance to read this one? I did know I, I've uh, I've only seen the Immortal Hulk. I, I never I haven't read any of it. So I know some things I've probably read some things online about it. But no, I haven't. I never really followed the Immortal Hulk. I did always love She-Hulk, though. I will actually say that that was a and I could never figure out because I didn't like the name, but she grabbed me right away. And I, I loved many of her portrayals. Absolutely. And uh, th with the Immortal Hulk, this is my comic book suggestion for the week, uh, for the month, for the year, whatever it is, ladies and gentlemen, go out and pick this one up. Uh, Al Ewing wrote this one. I can't remember the artist. The artist actually had to get ripped off towards the end because he was drawing anti-Semitic stuff into his artwork. Um, ah. so he had to kind of get removed. Uh, but wow, this that's is, a shame, man. That is really a really, shame. And again, really impulse control people, you know, like, yeah. 
uh, uncool, uncool. I, mean, I don't know who that artist is, but but uh, bad bad form there. Yeah, he won't. He won't. I don't think he'll ever really work in. The, I mean, he he might find some kind of work uh, down the road, but I know some stuff was linked to 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 people going back and looking in the backgrounds and like, oh wow, that's fucked up. Um, you know. However, the story for this, uh, imagine Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde essentially, and what happens yeah. is is the nighttime is for the Hulk, the daytime. Mm is for Bruce Banner. Uh, so it doesn't matter. And then he's really dealing with the split. I, I, I know it's called something else, but I, I, for the life, this is dissociative identity disorder. Yes. Yeah, there you go. So he's dealing with that. Um, and it's all of these past, um, um, it's all these past hulks. Uh, you know, it's all of these past people that were Hulk, you know, yeah. Um, and it's, they're invading Bruce Banner and he's, you see the inner turmoil when they go within Bruce there's this whole green door thing where people can go in and out of it. And that's the power of the Hulk. I'm telling you the first five issues, it'll get you the first issue alone. It'll get you hooked. It is. Right on. It actually sounds fascinating. I believe it was, did Alex Ross do covers? I feel like Alex I saw Ross art. Yeah. Covers. Yes. He, I think he yeah. did one for every single issue and he had the, he's always, in my opinion, uh, greatest cover artist of all time there, there there's a yeah. few artists out there that that i i absolutely love i'm a huge swamp thing fan so Bernie, swamp thing too man yeah we can talk we can talk forever you and i it seems yeah, absolutely man <laughs> uh, alex ross being another one i'm a huge george perez fan rest in peace george uh, absolutely rest in peace george perez that that uh that made me so sad it is i it, that one i that was one of the first times i cried when uh because i got to meet him a couple times and I, like I said, I just moved down here, so I've got all of my stuff um, throughout here. But I actually, for a free comic book day, he was doing some sketches, some real quick head yeah. sketches and stuff like that. Um, and he was raising money for the Golden Age comic book artists and comic book writers. Uh, a lot of them, there was a fund out there. A lot of them were having issues with medical bills and rent and everything yeah. like that. So he was raising money with a few other artists and donating all of that money from his time. Um, and, you know, so I got to meet him. I got to talk to him. And here's my funny, or here's my fun George Perez story. And we'll get back to King of the Hill. Uh, yeah. But I'm sitting in, um, what's that place called? Panera Bread. I'm sitting in there with my wife. We had just, I had just gotten out of the military. You know, I took the first year out of uh, when I got home off of work. I didn't work. I went to school because the military paid for it. So we're eating in Panera Bread and then we're splitting a steak and cheese sandwich and I'm eating mac and cheese, right? So I'm eating mac and cheese and I'm right next door to my comic book store, right? So I had just gotten my stack of comics. So I'm eating and then I see him walk by and I'm like, oh shit. And I've got mac and cheese coming down my face. I drop my spoon. I look like a child, right? <laughs> oh my God. And my wife's like, what's the matter? I was like, that's George Perez. And she was like, who? And I was like, we're going to talk about this after dinner or after lunch. Excuse me. We're going to have a talk in the car. I was like, that's George Perez. He's one of my favorite comic book artists. And I'm just going on and on. And she's like, well, why don't you go say hi to him? I'm like, no, I, you can't say hi to him. He's getting a sandwich. I don't want to bother him. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting there and I'm, um, and I'm eating and he's waiting at the counter and stuff. And I kept looking over and I wasn't eating and it was digging at me because I, I've for a longest time I've, I've tried my best to anytime somebody has influenced me, whether it's art, whether it's music, whether it's shows like King of the Hill, like yourself that you worked on. I want you guys to know how much I appreciate what you did because you guys gave me a bright spot in my day. I, mean, I didn't have a hard life growing up. You know, I had a hard couple years here and there when I was in the military, but you know, everybody goes through ups and downs. Everybody goes through some shit, right? You know, yeah. so you guys gave me bright spots throughout that. So, you know, it wasn't until probably about five, six years ago 
that I really want to make sure I started telling everybody, thank you. And it really wasn't until 2020 when everything was taken away from everybody and Kobe Bryant died that I got the idea yeah. for the podcast where I could go out and say, hey, you don't know when your last day is. Kobe Bryant died at 41 years old. His daughter, Gigi, died at 12. There was another 12-year-old on that plane. There was a whole bunch of people that lost their life on that helicopter. That happened very near uh, where I live, actually, yes. Yeah, and it, it's uh, it, it's crazy because that was the day he passed away, all those people passed away on that helicopter. Uh, we actually had tickets to go see the Los Angeles Lakers, or not Los Angeles Lakers, excuse me, Los Angeles Clippers uh, play my Orlando Magic. And, you know, my son and I would go to a couple games a year, and this is the one we wanted to go see. We wanted to go see Kawhi. And uh, we get the news a couple hours before game time, and I'm fucking like I it's not like I loved Kobe Bryant because he destroyed my magic in the finals uh our one chance at that time to win so he won a ring we didn't uh so I was I was like fuck I hated Kobe I hated but I hated the I hated the fact that he won and we didn't that's what yeah. I hated. I knew how important he was to the sport how important Michael Jordan was to the sport um mm -hmm. you know so I had this amount of respect for him and my son came up he's like what do we do and I was like well we're going to go put on this is the only time I'll wear somebody else's colors I was like we're going to go find anything gold we're going to go find anything purple and we're going to go and I've got goosebumps I'm trying not to cry but we all go down to the uh the arena we're all like everybody is it's quiet it's the quietest arena I have ever been in and they did two things that was absolutely beautiful at the beginning of the show they did the eight second violation for Kobe wearing eight they did the 24 second violation for Kobe wearing 24 when I tell you like I've got goosebumps now when I tell you everybody in that fucking arena was crying and I we knew why we were crying but we didn't know we were crying together but the fact that collectively we were all going through something and we were all feeling for something and we all had just for one second, at least we were all in unison in that entire arena, no matter what you did, what you said, what you worked at, who you voted for, what you believe in, who you prayed to. Everybody there was human for one yeah. second. Collectively, yeah. we were united. It was like, I don't ever want this to happen again, but it was like September 11th when everybody was united. Everybody was fighting for a yeah. common goal, you know, and it wasn't until then that I realized, like I said, in 2020, when I started this podcast, that I needed to tell everybody, thank you. So flash, flashback to George Perez. I go up to him, I tap him on the shoulder and I go, I know who you are. And he smiled and he's like, you do. And I was like, you helped foster my childhood. I was like, I've got comic books because of your art. I was like, I didn't like writers that you worked with. And I still bought your books because of your artwork. Your artwork touched me in such a way that I can never articulate. Thank you for everything you did. And before he could say anything, I turned away and he said, hey, 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 hey. And I, I, I was like, fuck, I, that was that was awkward as hell. So I walked back really quick. Yeah. And he asked me what my name was. I shook his hand. I said, my name is Julian. And uh, he was like, well, it was nice to meet you. Thank you for being a fan. I go back and I sit down and I'm trying, like I'm buzzing, I'm geeking out, I'm trying not to fucking start crying in front of my wife and shit. And she's like, well, how was it? I was like, that was the coolest thing ever. I was like, he asked me what my name was. <laughs> <laughs> so, Well, well, man, I, I, I want to say, again, we haven't had much talk. We talked a little bit before this and now, now yeah. we're having here. What you said there about sort of the origins of your, your podcast and what you're doing, I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've heard in a, in a long time. Thank you. Uh, I can't speak for, I, I would never even try to speak for all creators. I, everyone probably feels different, mm -hmm. but speaking for me and I know uh, a lot of friends, because as we, as we share stories, I don't think there's anything that really touches you more as an artist than being faced, being presented with 
the fact that what you've done mattered yeah. to somebody, you know, so, so to take that time, I, I imagine, you know, especially celebrities that are extremely popular in the now they're busy and probably feeling harassed, but most creative people, I think just truly appreciate that, that genuine human connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so what? A, it's a, a real wonderful way to approach uh, anyone and I don't know, great, great spirit to even do this sort of thing. So yeah, good on you, man. I think that's that's great. You're you're giving a lot back to the people that I guess in some way inspired you. That's like a feedback loop. So that that's that's awesome. Awesome. Really, really. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, thank you. And you know what else is awesome? King of the Hill is awesome, Alan. Yeah, it is called a segue and we're right back on track ladies and gentlemen so there was a few episodes you had sent me that you that you worked on that you said stuck out the most to you and two in particular i wanted to hit on because one i think it's fun to hit on the ones that were really really fun and the ones that were really really hard right so which one do you want to start with first you want to start order the straight arrow or do you want to start let's with- do fun let's do fun start first yeah let's go let's, yeah. let's do the order of the straight arrow man where yeah. are you when you get that script coming across your desk say hey man this is the next episode you're going to work on that again was pretty early for for me in mm-hmm. my, my king of the hill experience and i uh, i got to work with clay hall and john rice i believe on that episode it was it was clay directed and john was the assistant director but again it's a, it's a long time ago but um it was working on that and I, I i personally like at this point my sons are both eagle scouts but at that point in my life like i i, I was not someone that was was a a fan of scouts or scouting or anything so so it was it was a to even think about those things was kind of a challenge. And, and that episode really, really just grabbed me. Everything about it, the snipe hunt, I had never even heard the reference, a snipe hunt. And then what's a snipe hunt? And then to, to, to find out that's something that people actually do. The, the relationship between Hank and Bobby in that, Bobby having a, a crime to cover up, and how the writers are going to get us out of this situation. That was one that just look going through it as, as someone, you know, I've got the script and I'm reading through it, it captivated me. And every, every moment of working on that, I think was a moment of me discovering, I actually like this, what I'm doing. I'm not just doing this for work. I'm not just doing this. So I have my, I'm, I'm really enjoying being uh, immersed in in that world. So yeah, that one that was a very sort of magical uh, one for me early in my, my I guess my formative experiences. That that one yeah really 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 hit me. And uh, the the folks working on it, there uh, John and Clay in particular, were just tremendous artists and and very willing to share their thoughts and discuss things. So it was around then, the Order of the Straight Arrow, that I think really kind of ignited for me, you know, like like what I can what I can do in this, what the the participation on this team in this team sport is like. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely fond memories of uh, Order of the Straight Arrow. Good what was stuff, your favorite? Man. Like, uh, not not so much. Like, let's pick one that you worked on and then one you didn't work on. As far as scenes go, do you have a favorite moment in that episode? I have a favorite moment in that episode. Mm-hmm. I guess really, again, having not just rewatched it, it's it's the uh, 
Bobby kind of having a cop to what he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just in my, in my mind, it's this image of kid and his dead bird and he's just fucked up so completely. And that kind of uh, thing, I guess I, I related to as a kid, right. You know, that, that, that feeling of being in, in trouble, being incompetent, being, um, like in some ways early in that episode, it seems like the kids are the, the butt of the adults joke mm-hmm. in some way. But then the, the misadventure ropes the adults into it too for, for responsibility. I think it was all of that. It was the story of it that really, really got me. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, uh, the first thing I think of uh, is obviously the scene you just said, Bobby's holding him trying to resuscitate this bird and he's screaming, we Matanye. And then <laughs> yeah, it's the, the other scenes like this one, it comes by in flashes. And I just watched the, I just watched the episode last night. Um, but it's, it's Dale Gribble driving by with his pants down and he's, <laughs> it's Bill getting the kids to talk because he's hungry and he wants to eat the beef jerky. Uh, it's yeah. the fact that all the kids knew what was going on and you flash back. Uh, you see Hank and his friends going through the same thing Bobby and his friends are going through. And I think you see Dale smoking for the first time as a kid, which I thought was absolutely fucking hilarious. Um, yeah. It's like I said, there's not a dull moment in any of these episodes of these shows, but like that one in particular, I think of like, could you see Bobby's true character right there? You see that yeah. he's confronted, confronted, and that's that. That was conflating two words together. Uh, you see him conflicted. That was the word I was looking for. You see him conflicted with what's going on. You know that that he's not okay. That he has a conscience. That he's an actual caring yeah. human being at twelve years old. And ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, as a guy that has a thirteen-year-old right now, they don't give a fuck about anything but themselves, and even then. <laughs> care about themselves so the fact that you see a 12 year old at that time have a conscience mm-hmm. and care about something other than himself i was just like wow this yeah. is different you know so like i said it hit it hit differently um with that with that show is there anything that sticks out in particular like when you guys would do these shows uh would you guys have like uh like meetings where you would try to work through scenes and stuff like that or would scenes just be handed out and then that's how it would go about Oh, no, nothing was ever just handed out. There was an overall process that um, could change situationally or, or, you know, by episode, depending on who's running it. That would be the director of each episode. But but um, for the most part, it was like the the team you would know, you'd know who's going to be working on or who's storyboarding, who's the the assistant director who's the director. And there would be a meeting where the, the director would hand out, would read through the script so we're all on the same page, as it were. Everyone knows what's going on. And then you'd be assigned your portion of it. You're doing this from pages 5 through 12 or, or, or whatever in the in the script. Uh, ideally, still communicating with, with each other, just casually, because we're all in the same place. But everybody would work on their, their thumbnails. Usually the director kind of pitches it to you we would say they, they kind of talk through the script and their thoughts on it and then you thumbnail just the most rudimentary drawings and then we'd have a thumbnail meeting where mm-hmm. you go through and over time king of the hill got you know like a um this this guy jeff myers who for a very long time became the, the storyboard supervisor 
I don't think he was in place at that at that time. It might have been John Rice who was was filling that role at that time. But um, you would look at the thumbnails and the directors, the storyboard supervisor, the AD even sometimes could weigh in on thoughts or opinions and people would be in the room drawing and talking about it. So all, there was always, always conversation yeah. about um, what, we're, what we're trying to capture, how we're trying to show it. And then the process just back then we were doing full layout. So that would mean that we would do our storyboards. You get your storytelling approved. And then we had people in-house that were doing essentially um, like keyframe animation poses. You know, mm -hmm. And like that would be handed out to those piles of folders, each scene separated. And, and we would, uh, as director and AD, you'd, you'd try to cast the artists who, who were working with you, that person really works great on emotional scenes. That person really uh, does great on physical action. That person's extremely funny. And then, you, you know, sometimes you'd be like, Hey, what do you want to work on? But, but most of the time it was here, here's a, here's something that, that we want you to work on. And then the same basic process would happen. There'd be a discussion about the material, what the director's looking for, and then kind of oversight as the as the artists are working, they could come in and, and talk with you about it. Sometimes just wandering around, you see someone, oh, what is that? That's the scene where, where, where Bobby's holding the crane. Yeah. What are you doing there? Or, oh, I thought we were going to do it X. You know, so it, it was very, very, very interactive and communal. Sounds like a weird way to say it. But um, that was one of the things I, I think, again, around that time that, it started to really sink in to me that this is, um, you know, what do they say? Like it takes a village to raise a child, right? It, ta it, takes a, it takes a village to make these shows. And if we could all sort of be doing it together, it was fun. And you were benefiting from the insights that one person over here had about the story or about the character. And someone else over here is like, yeah, but couldn't we do this and really make it fun? You know, so not like arguing, but like like arguing the the thoughts back and forth. I think um, really helped us as a as a group to um, flesh out, maybe live in those those stories, something something like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was the it was that the process I think was what really grabbed me at that point, and just loving the material. So maybe like when, when you said cotton cotton got you interested in the military, it was around the order of the straight arrow that I, I was just like, I'm charmed by this. I, I I love these characters and I feel I feel something as I'm working on these, you know. And, and um the funny was always secondary to me. I loved the funny. Yeah, you know, but but it was like when when I'm like, I know what's going on and I know what they're feeling and how can we show that? That was, that was the stuff that always kind of, kind of grabbed me. And, and I think you nailed it really. It's that Bobby has a conscience. Like at that time I thought of early on of, of Bobby as Pugsley, Pugsley from the Adams family, you know? So I'd be like, well, Pugsley has a conscience. And then he's not Pugsley. He's Bobby forevermore. You know what I mean? Like he became uh, someone, someone real to me. Uh, I think it's just that, that floppy, pathetic, crane and uh the the to me the the horror of being in that position 
that you've done uh, something <laughs> so potentially uh, devastating that's going to get you in trouble. I don't know. I, I really loved it. Absolutely, man. And it's funny you use the uh, the village uh, to raise a child. I literally just used that analogy on Saturday, Friday night when I had my last chat with somebody. It literally yeah. makes it so collaborative. You guys are sitting there bouncing each other's ideas. You guys are punching up funny. You're punching up story. You're punching up this. You're punching up that. You're just like, oh, this doesn't make sense if we do this. How do we figure that out? So I yeah. think that's something very unique because in my line of work, we do the same thing. Like, hey, do you think it needs more acid? Yeah, it needs more salt. It needs this, it needs that. Oh, let's add heat to it. Oh, let's add lemon to this. So it, it's very, everything is very collaborative. When Very, very similar cooking, right? It, it's it's a, it's art, yes. right? And and, if, and um, you can be the one in any, right? The, the auteur. Cool. And that's fun sometimes to do it on your own, right? But yeah. but like when you get someone else in there saying, throw in some more salt, throw in some more acid, or, yeah. and and you, you could be like, like, responsive mm -hmm. to to other people's yeah it's it's wonderful I, I love that about this business about this type of art again your your business as as uh uh in the the culinary arts arts is the yeah. the thing that that certainly connects us right absolutely man um and uh the other one that i thought was very fascinating i, I wanted to ask you why you had such a hard time with it man yeah. but I figured we'd talk about it, um, but you, you said you had had a hard time. Was it as a Hank Overboard? Was that the name of the episode? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What was what was difficult about this one? I believe that that was the last episode that I did for King of the Hill. I can't quite remember because again, it's a long time ago. But looking at the list of things, it looks like that would have been my last one. Mm -hmm. uh, probably a big part of what was difficult. And then I'll say what's specific about the episode was I at that point I had been doing it for what felt like many, many years. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I, I took the first job thinking three months, six months. And then when I got made an assistant director, I started changing what I was saying with my wife. I'd go like, maybe I can do this for two years. Yeah. And then it was five years. And then it was like, I don't know, it was like eight or nine years or so at that point. And I, I was ready or something uh, different, yeah. something to challenge me in a different yes. way, yeah. right? But the episode itself was really fun. Like, I really loved the the, the episode that we're talking about. They, they spend a good deal of time in the water. It's like that that film, Open Water, where you've gone off the side of the boat and you, don't, you can't get back on. Um, it was funny. It was very funny. Like I, again, reading it, loved it. And all of the on land stuff was great. I quite enjoyed working on it. But from an animation perspective, everything we did, King of the Hill was, was 2D traditional animation. So, so no CG water effects. Mm -hmm. So, well, not every scene, I'm exaggerating, but so many scenes had water effects yeah. and water effects in and of themselves were not to say problematic, but it was something that, that people would specialize in or not be particularly competent in. And it wasn't a series that was about water effects. So to get a group of people doing that consistently and consistently well, that's a bit of a challenge. And then essentially from a visual standpoint, you're, you're dealing with, with corks floating on, on water. You know, like getting the, it, it sounds 
boring even to say it, but the physics of how things work, you don't bob out of the water, you know, you kind of ride the water, right? So, so there's, there's that, how to do that in animation, in the layouts, how to uh, convey that in a, in a, in a reasonably convincing way, how to come up with shots that, you know, like we had, like it was, again the, the the limitations of the the physical process at that time it was a much bigger deal to show to do any shot where you see someone above and below the water yeah. right because like you know you're you're drawn different below the water and it's, the color is keyed differently so there was all kinds of like just talk about the logistics of it it's what are we doing for ripples in the water and how much can we show and um it was, I would say that episode at that point in my life was was painstakingly uh, mechanical mm-hmm. in, in ways that, that I found to be um, not creatively stimulating, yeah. I guess, is, is maybe the best way to, to put it. So I look back on that one as the episode that frustrated me the most to work on. But it's not the episode, you know, and it's not, it's certainly not the story. It's the the mechanical um, accomplishment of it. Like, and, and here I'll equate it uh, grandiosely to, I, I remember uh, Kevin Costner did that film Waterworld. Yeah. And it was like, it was like a global bomb. And then I saw it in the theaters and I was like, that movie was fun. Why does everyone hate it so much? It's not great, but it's like, it's, it's pretty good. But like when you hear like behind the scenes, they would build sets and then like a storm would absolutely really literally destroy the place and uh, how to film in the water, under the, all of that kind of stuff. We didn't have that kind of drama in animation, but um, you know, I'm, I'm romantically uh, connecting it in that it's, it's a, it's a challenge to work on something that um, is different from what you're, I, I don't know what I would say. What my, I felt like my strengths were mm-hmm. at that time. So to put your your energy as an artist, as a director, into the mechanics, it 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 was that was so sort of taxing to a part of my brain that it was just less enjoyable to to focus on the things that I, I felt like I was much uh, better suited to or more interested in. So um, yeah, that's 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 kind of the thing on that one. Not a knock on the story. It, it was a uh, it was quite fun as a story. It was just uh, working on it is the one that I'm like, uh, that that was Vietnam for me. That one. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So uh, the two things I got from that one, we're gonna have to have you come back on because we could we already hit a little bit over uh, an hour already. So I don't want to. All right, dude. Yeah, I would. I'd love to chat with you again. Yeah, but I'd love to have you back on. We can go because, like I said, after we get off this one, you're probably going to think about King of the Hill a little bit differently, uh, and then you'll start coming up with some with some things yeah. that you remembered. Um, but that episode in particular, man, that was the first time where I thought one of those four might die. Uh, ha! Uh, like I don't know why, but it, it was just like this seemed very different than what you know we're used to as far as. Uh, They'd been put in some danger, you know, a couple different times, uh, but nothing yeah. felt like, man, this they could literally just say it was an undertow, you know, somebody a rip current, you know, and then yeah, Dale drowned or Boomhauer drowned, or I don't think they'd ever kill Hank, but you know, it's just like 
there was a very specific point in my time, uh, my life when I was watching shows and then characters were dying in shows that I were watching. I'm like, what yeah. the fuck is going on? Why are, why, yeah. whoa, 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 why are they taking this guy out? You know? So it yeah. was, it was like the, like I said, the first time I felt like general fear for these characters. Cause it was like, man, one of these guys might go. I was happy to see that. No, nobody went. Um, but uh, I remember looking back on this one and being pretty happy with, with how it turned out and how it ended because it was, very fun it was it was very animation right in a sense that like man this doesn't make sense but it makes sense it puts these characters in an unpredictable manner um and anything can really happen you know um so like i said i loved there's not one episode i didn't love man um that's super cool though actually i i love that 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 you're you're reflecting on that one as as being a a harrowing experience for the characters uh because again, maybe that's that's the ideal is uh, having an audience who has questions, mm-hmm. like you know some some concern, even yeah. that they could die, something could go wrong, even if you can't kill off Hanyel. If there's any anxiety that you feel in a in an episode, uh, yeah, I feel like like someone someone did something uh, well. Yeah, so was, that's that's cool. I was stressed the fuck out, Alan. There's a couple shows that I can look back to and just think like. Man, like uh, one comes to mind, and then we'll rotate into some of the the questions, and then we'll uh, we'll get out of here. But, uh, one comes into mind. It's uh, it's it's probably eight, ten months into uh, COVID. I hadn't started. No, it's not even that long. It's probably like six months into COVID because I hadn't went back to work yet. Um, they still had everything kind of locked down, and uh, we're watching my son, my young or my oldest son, excuse me, is like really big into anime. Like he loves like all the kids now. They love anime. Um, oh yeah, man. that's it that's animation now is is anime yeah absolutely man for the kids yeah we're watching this one it's called my hero academia right so it's like i think you might like it if you haven't watched it yet but it's uh yep i know the show absolutely it's like x-men man um just in japanese form but uh there's a character that's in there and uh you're led to believe that he's going to die like how they set it up the music is hitting the emotional arc like i'm invested because this guy is my favorite anime dub actor um chris sabat you know he played my favorite character in dragon ball z piccolo he's got this very iconic voice right so he's playing this character named all might and all might's not even my favorite character he's a he's the he's the guy that everybody looks up to in the show as the first superhero right he's everybody's superman essentially the sort of yeah superman right yeah yeah right so uh you know he's got this 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 just this whole aura about him for superman and then he's fighting what would be his Lex Luthor essentially and with All Might his quirk is like he can turn into this superhero but he had had this really bad fight with the guy he's fighting now um, where it damaged his body so bad that he could only change into this form for so long and then every time he transforms into it it takes more time off of it so you know what used to be he could be in that form all day he's only allowed to he can only be in it because he would die for like five minutes and the scene that they show is him fighting this guy um all might fighting uh uh all for one yeah all for one yeah so he's fighting all for one and then you're seeing everything go on the music is dramatic you know the stakes because this guy can die he is literally going to leave it on the battlefield because that's what a hero does a hero gives everything right yeah and I got it's like the third or fourth time I've had goosebumps, but there's a scene in there where they show an internal like image of him essentially. And what they do is they've got a candlelight and the candlelight goes out and you hear yeah. and then huh. the light fades out of all my yeah. and I'm sitting up there 
and I've got my hands on my head. I'm, I'm, I'm pacing back and forth. And Katie's my wife. She came home for lunch because uh, she was the only one working in the store she was working at. Um, so I've literally, I'm like, please don't kill. Please, please. I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> I'm like, I'm stressed the fuck out. Like I've got skin in this game, right? I'm so invested in this character. And I've never been invested in anime like that before. But they, they got me hook, line, and sinker with the show. And my wife, Katie, she's like, you do realize this is fake, right? And I'm like, listen, I don't need negative. <laughs> I need this guy to make it out. Cause I like, I'm almost to the point. Like, I don't know what it is as I've gotten older, I've gotten a lot more emotional. I've gotten a lot more sentimental. Uh, I've gotten a lot more teary eyed with shit that I probably shouldn't be getting teary eyed. Me too, though. Maybe that's growing up as a man in some way. Right. Sometimes I think you, I can be more comfortable with it later or yeah. whatever. Yeah. You're not just having to repress that shit. Like we're told we just stop being a pussy. Don't cry. Men don't cry. Right. So right. you have that, that you have that bravado going on or that bravado yeah. going against you. But I remember I'm like, Oh my God, he's there. You're going to kill him. Please fucking don't do this. Please not right now. And then she goes, Hey, you know, this is fake. And I was like, oh, man. yes, I know this is fake Katie, but please Put some positive energy out. I need this guy to be alive because he's <laughs> the light of the show. He is the reason all these characters are trying to do what they're doing. And like I said, yeah. I was just so emotionally invested, just like I was invested in those four characters and that fucking water because I thought one of them was going to get it. So I, like I said, hats yeah. off to you guys for, for making me invested in a show and making me look at things differently and act differently. Like most shows, when they try to give you a message or they try to build a message into that show you can you can smell it out you can feel it it's like oh i, I see what you're doing here but genuinely- yeah, like i don't i don't want to be preached at right oh. i don't want to be lectured i don't want to i don't want to learn i want to be entertained absolutely and then it it slips in and it usually mm-hmm. slips in when like it's so well described there but it, you gave yourself to the fiction for a moment you let yourself like like when you're of course you, you I, I get it my, my wife would do that too but yeah, it's not real. But it's not not confusion between reality and the fiction. It's it's actually it's like a virtual reality to feel feelings. Yeah. Right. It's Depending a disbelief. Yeah. Yeah. And and go through that. I would much rather go through those those pieces you described there that that facing death and loss in fiction than in reality. Absolutely. You know? And and some of those fictional moments um, have, I don't know, paved, paved the way uh, surprisingly for me to, to endure real life mm-hmm. hardships. Cause you kind of, yeah, again, you have some experience with yes. it and right. You're like, well, no, it's an anime character. Yeah. But I felt it. You know, it's not that he's a real person, but it's a real feeling. And that's, that's, um that's amazing. And it's a wonderfully magical part of this, uh, this entertainment business um yeah that's cool cool yeah Yeah, Um, anybody i've always said this it doesn't matter what line of work you do food animation music it does not matter if you can get somebody to feel some kind of way whether it's good bad or indifferent it doesn't matter you are eliciting a feeling in that person person is going to remember that we can remember songs we can remember lyrics right we can remember where we were what headspace we were in when we heard that song, uh, yeah. Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, the first time I ever heard it, I remember where I was at. I remember what was going on. I can remember the smells in the area. There's something yeah. there's something so special and so particular about something like that. With animation, too, I can remember where I saw 
the first time I ever saw Futurama when it aired on Fox. I can tell you where I was at because I was deployed uh, when I knew King of the Hill was was over because they ended yeah. it when I was deployed. So I had to, you know, I had to wait uh, and check out, ladies and gentlemen, this was before you had streaming. So I had the DVR. I think it was TV, TiVo, DVR, whatever it was back in the day. Yeah. I had to record it that way. So I had to wait almost nine months before I could see the entire rest of the season. Um, but like I said, there's something special when you can elicit a feeling to something like that. That's something that is fictitious, something that's not yeah. real, but you suspend disbelief just long enough to be sucked into their world. Well, just that you cared that a series of fictitious misadventures of cartoon characters was coming to an end. You know, yeah. and that you cared mm-hmm. matters. Like I, 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 I don't know. It's not not to not to overstate it, but in my mind, I think I always think there's there's sort of a a, a sacred uh, trust in, in the the um, the art the art of storytelling um, because it does move people. It affects people. It can affect you. Not uh, and I'm not being this person that says if you play a violent video game you become violent. I'm not saying that, uh, yeah. but but the stories that we feed ourselves on um, get inside us and they they move us in in positive or negative ways. So it's it's uh, I, I don't know. I guess I I try to at least be aware of that and hopefully put mostly uh, positive stuff out there. But yeah, that's cool. That's really really cool and um, it's always inspiring to me uh to want to go back and bother to to work in storytelling when it, when i'm talking to someone who's like yeah this actually moved me it's not just just not lip service i i like it that's cool but but like yeah something moved me i think maybe we all want that you want to affect the world absolutely. right absolutely you want to make sure or you want to know at the end of the day when you lay your head on the pillow that you did something that matters yeah. Whoever is out there that that's why we do whatever it is we do. That's why I cook. I want have you ever seen the movie Ratatouille? Yeah. Yeah. There's a scene in there where Ego's eating that ratatouille, right? And he yeah. drops his fork. It hits yeah. the table and he's flash for or he's flashback or rewound. What do you want to say? To when he was a little kid, he fell and scraped his knee, and his mom made his favorite dish, that peasant food, that ratatouille, right? Yeah. It was something so simple. It's something everybody does when they go through culinary school. It is very basic, right? It is a very peasant, rustic farmer dish, essentially. And that rat got that moment. That that is a moment, or that is a that is something that everybody in food industry chases. I don't give a shit what anybody says. You could be douchey, you could be pretentious, you could say you're hard ass, you're punk rock. You do not chase that vibe. You're just making good food. Fuck off. No, you're not. You are chasing that moment because you want everybody that walks through those doors when they sit down. You want them to have an experience that one they'll talk about for the rest of their lives. Two that they'll have memories to spread yeah. forever, and three that they're going to come back. You can hit that with that one dish. You can hit that with that one note, with that one person. You never know what's going to hit. You never know what somebody's going to love. You never know what's going to be good or bad. So give it your all each time is essentially what I'm getting. I just turned into a real self-help towards the end of it. Well, but No, it's kind of cost. Uh, it makes me think of a film I recently saw. It was The Menu. Have you seen that film? I have not yet. Everybody's been talking about it, though. You should see The Menu because yeah, everything that you just said is embedded in that film. And maybe ultimately it's the the, the point. Of what's going on there, and I'll I'll leave it at that. Without spoiling anything, you should see the menu. I think that it'll it'll mean something to you. Absolutely. And if there's uh, one thing that's meant something to me, it's this show. Like I said, man, without this show, I don't learn 
half the shit I learned, man. You guys, you and Hey Arnold, you guys showed us how to navigate a world without talking down to us. You talked to us, not at us. You didn't talk over us. You talked to us with these two shows. Um, and in particular, King of the Hill, since you worked on that one, man. Uh, whenever you think of King of the Hill, what are some of the first thoughts that come to your mind? Whenever you think about in its entirety from from the first episode you worked on to the last episode, if you could sum that up into one sentence, one word, one paragraph, what would it be? Well, really, to, to me, most of my thoughts are about the the experience rather than the show. Mm -hmm. And for a very large group of people mm -hmm. uh, in the animation industry, it was a, a not unique, but a very rare opportunity to work together for a period of years, get to know each other, get to hone our craft together. And although most of us aren't working side by side with each other you know like we're sort of peppered out through the through the industry i think there's there's very much a kind of like i jokingly said that's my vietnam moment earlier yeah. but 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 there is a sort of a band of brothers uh feeling band of sisters to mm -hmm. uh, amongst the crew i i have a lot of affection and deep deep uh, feelings and memories for for the people and all of the the things that we we went through together um and uh, again to, specific to the the entertainment of the show there were just so many opportunities to work on silly ridiculous things that made for moments between us as artists uh, i'm thinking a good friend of mine chuck austin and him working on the episode where uh, Meryl, Meryl Streep was a voice in it. But Bill is going back to, to his, his ancestral home and um, reconnecting with his roots. But in the course of making that episode, there was like just there's a there's a fight. I guess you would say a cat fight between some, some ladies. And in the animation that came back, it came back with some absolutely unfortunate nudity that had to be changed in retakes and like like that absolutely just stands out to me as a as just a crazy charming moment that we all laughed about and worried about um one of the episodes that meant a lot to me to to work on was um uh, aisle 8a it was called connie uh super newsome getting her her first period and yeah. I think it was the at the time I wasn't sure how to to react to I was I was called into uh, a pro producer's office and she said like um we want to give you this episode um even though you're a man it's like this really sensitive subject but we think you'll handle it sensitively and yeah. like on, on on one level like like I'm like what do you mean I can't do it because I'm a man but 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 more like you're like wow that's I felt like I was I was entrusted with something. Mm -hmm. And it made me approach it like really sort of thoughtfully and, and uh, sensitively, I hope. But going through, I've never gotten my first period. I'm still trying. But, um, <laughs> you know, so I don't I don't know that experience firsthand. Yeah. I, I can empathize with what that's like. But then to work on the material and and have to be there with Connie. And, and again, I use the word articulate a lot, but trying to articulate the struggles and challenges of that really, really meant so much to me. And I, I wound up getting something called a spirit award 
-hmm. for that, which sounds incredibly dismissive that I'm like something called the Spirit Award. Whoever gives out Spirit Awards, I really appreciate it. And that's super cool that, that you did that. I don't mean, but it's a long time ago. But like those kind of things really, really, it, King of the Hill was an opportunity for me. It changed my life. It it gave me the, the chance to learn that I was good at something that I didn't know I was good at. I, I had no idea. And it gave me the chance to to meet friends and make friendships that lasted a lifetime. Um, get so many an, an enormously um, impactful professional lessons by working with these people that were somebody. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I'm just like, it's a job. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, these people have accomplished these things and, ha and have continued to accomplish Mike Judge. I mean, he's not the Beavis and Butthead guy. He is the Beavis and Butthead guy. And not to dismiss Beavis and, but Beavis and Butthead is wonderful. But Mike Judge is so much more than the Beavis and Butthead guy. And, um, and I'm sorry to be going on and on, but I think yeah. a, a, another thing that I really, really learned there early on was we're not making a show about cartoon characters and i was working again in every department i could i was doing character design in the evenings and working on characters and then going like we can't just put cowboy hats on people that's a stereotype i'm like what do you mean i don't understand isn't texas like like i'd seen dallas the tv show that's that's all that i think of is Texas. And then I learned about Texas. I learned about Texans. I learned about culture. We visited Texas. I, I went with one of the other directors, Matt Engstrom. At one point, he and I uh, taught a brief course uh, in Austin, Texas. And to meet the people, adults that were working at an ad agency who loved the characters and recognized themselves and their neighbors in it, that, that kind of stuff, yeah, it just blew me away. And it made, I felt, I don't know, honored to participate. And um, yeah, it, it was, it's the foundational experience of my professional life. I, I don't think I could be more grateful for the opportunity and the people that I, I worked with. It was uh, a wonderful time. If it had been a terrible show, it would have been a wonderful time for me. But to have had all those personal great experiences, and then there's a legacy of entertainment for people that don't know me at all and don't care. That's great, man. I got to be part of something big that, that moves people. That's, that's, um, it's a very, very fortunate life to, to live, you know, not like what I was looking for. Or I expected. So uh, yeah, King of the Hill meant so much and still means so much to me. Absolutely. I mean, so much to so many of us, man. And, uh, I'd be remiss to not throw in one more quote from this show. Um, and it's with that episode you were talking about where Bill goes down there and he re rediscovers his Cajun roots. And yeah. there's no better way to really end this podcast, Alan, than this flower is wilted. <laughs> He's been Alan. I've been Julian. This has been the What's in My Head podcast. And this has been another piece and a huge piece of your childhood. Good night.